0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
1: Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Alahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how
0: are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 9th. Today, the man risking his life to expose the illegal tiger trade what it means to be electable, and a florist trying to save orchids from their owners.
2: Here I am walking through the Sao Market. This is a market that's kind of a no-man's land on the corner of Thailand and Laos. Um, The number of tigers in the wild has plunged over the last century, so from around 100,000 to fewer than 4,000 today. Meanwhile, their numbers in captivity have exploded to more than 12,500. So you're talking about there are more than three times the number of tigers in captivity today than are in the wild. And that stirred a question to us how did this happen?
0: Over the course of the last year, Terry McCoy has been trying to answer that question. And that brought him to Laos in search of 300 missing tigers.
2: As you walk through here, you see a lot of different wines, shoes, and backpacks, and also see a place that's called Exotic Family. Now Exotic Family has a lot of different jewelry out, but as you start talking to them, they start bringing out what they really see, exotic elements. They bring out a tiger claw, they bring out tiger bone, they bring out tiger
0: teeth. In many parts of Asia, tigers are believed to have special medicinal properties.
2: From just its bone to its whisker. Its
0: whisker? Its
2: whisker even is thought to keep away centipedes if you burn it. And what that has done is it's created this gold rush for this animal.
0: They started being farmed almost like cattle. Originally, tiger farms were created to help stop poaching. The idea was that the farms would grow the population of domesticated tigers, satisfy the demand for tiger products, and make it so that tigers in the wild could live in peace. But over time, it just incited more poaching of tigers. So in 2007, there was an international effort to shut down tiger farms. A wildlife convention called CITES, which was formed by countries from around the world, passed a resolution to stop the tiger farming. But the problem
2: is, a lot of these nations that signed on to this accord don't necessarily want to stop it because there's such demand for it and there's so many business interests in play for these tiger parts. So a lot of it was just kind of countries would look the other way, none of these farms were closed down. There are laws to protect tigers, but there's a difference between
0: having a law and having it be enforced. Tiger farms went underground. They started calling themselves zoos and conservation centers.
2: They were only conservation centers and zoos in name alone. And a lot of this then kind of went into the black market where you have all of these captive tigers that were then raised in captivity and then killed, and then their parts smuggled. How much did he say the tiger teeth were?
3: Carl. Tiger teeth, how (laughs) much were these? So you
0: decided that you wanted to get an up-close-and-personal look at the tiger black market in Asia. And the way that you did it was by going with this guy, Carl Amman.
3: Tell him to show me all the tiger teeth. I want to compare if this is really tiger. There's lots of ivory there on his display.
0: Who is he? And how did you find him?
2: So when I was first looking into this story, I heard that Laos was a place where they had operated with greater impunity than just about anywhere else.
3: So um, these are from... Wait, wait, wait. Um, but this is uh, the water. This, this is This This is... These items are all from Vietnam because Vietnam there are more tiger farms here. Like the tiger farms here, they don't sell t- pots like this. There is a zoo. Uh, they don't kill the tiger for.
2: And time. just about the only person that I knew of who'd been inside one of these farms was this man named Carl Mon.
3: But Laos has a lot of tiger farms. Laos没有， Laos这些东西都要保护的。Tigers in Laos are protected. They they won't kill it for their power. It's a zoo. It's It's not a tiger
2: farm. If the world is going to save the tiger, it faces one of its most crucial tests in Laos. It is a global hub of the wildlife trade. It shares 1,600 miles with the two largest markets of wildlife products in the world in Vietnam and in China. Laos, over the last couple of years, has made a lot of noise trying to vow that it was going to close its tiger farms, that it was going to stop the illegal trade and the shops, that no new tiger farms or or breeding enclosures were going to open up. Carl's been investigating this for five or six
3: years. Somehow he has this business of making Laos and China look good. It's all Vietnam's problem, you know. The farms are all in Vietnam, the tigers all come from Vietnam. No, from China. What bullshit! I mean, you have a tiger farm right up the road here. No, we don't butcher these tigers. Here. Bullshit.
2: He talks with this very like gruff, Swiss German accent. He lives at the base of Mount Kenya, where he's lived at his compound for decades, where he raised two orphan chimpanzees and a cheetah named Sassa. And and I was like, I
0: want to know more about
2: this guy. <laughs>
0: So Carl Amon is an animal black market investigator, or what is his actual job?
2: So Carl first came to Africa as a hotelier for the Intercontinental, and he ultimately helped set up the Rumble in the Jungle between Foreman and Muhammad Ali. (laughs) But over the years, he got more and more interested in photography, and he started going deeper and deeper into the forest. He ultimately opened up this nature reserve, this ecological camp in the Mazarai National Park in Kenya. And he sold it and made a boatload of money and got rich off this. It's also, he's now in his 40s, and then he's taking a trip down the Congo River one day in one of these famed Zaire river boats. It's chugging along. And he sees then in that moment in Africa that he had no idea existed. There were hundreds of murdered chimpanzees and apes along the riverbanks. And what this was, was a new sort of market of bushmeat. He became so angry and so furious that he became obsessed with this. And he took these ventures and these investigations to places that nobody else was going to, more or less all by himself, and developed this very sort of specialized, but also what some call not necessarily ethical means of being able to expose and being able to investigate wildlife ecological destruction.
0: What, what does that mean?
2: So most conservationists say it's not ethical for someone investigating this to buy wildlife products, because that just, you know, fuels the market. Carl doesn't, he doesn't, he ignores that because he said, he said, the only way people are going to trust someone like me or one of these investigators, is we have to, we have to buy it. We have to get into this. And he's willing to get his hands dirty in a way that other conservationists are not. He calls himself the bad cop of the sort of conservation movement. And Carl someone who's kind of on the fringes of it. He works by himself. And what he does is that he then hires and and gets these sort of local contacts who he cultivates over years and equips them with hidden cameras and then pays them and sends them out to go start buying this stuff.
0: So you decided to travel with Carl Amon to Laos for 10 days. What was that like? Um, risky?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, the thing was, Carl was happy to have me be around, but Carl was there for a mission. He was there to gather evidence to try to present to the authorities of what is happening to tigers in, in Southeast Asia and Laos specifically.
0: And so all of that involves actually going to these shops where you can buy these kinds of goods and also going to tiger farms, right?
2: Yeah. So the idea of this trip was that we would start in the north and then venture out to the central Laos, out in the east. And along the way, we would go to tiger farms. We're standing right now outside of what appears to be a new tiger farm, a secret tiger farm that is down a dirt road inside we found dozens of tigers yesterday we found lions we found bear right now carl and phil have come back to fly a drone over it to see if they can get even a closer look to see what's going on inside fly drones fly drones so he would bring drones with him yeah so carl went in as a quote a tourist but obviously the story of him as a tourist would Crumble upon even minor inspection. He had drones with him. He had like all this evidence about like tiger farming with him. But that said, the idea was to take those drones and fly them, you know, illegally over these farms because we didn't have we didn't have a permit. He didn't have a permit to fly a drone, so he's like, I'm just going to fly the drone. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to watch this guy fly the drone now. And and so we were just doing that over these tiger farms. And ultimately, the idea was then to venture to the other side of the country and find these men that. Carl has been tracking for five years who are some of the most notorious tiger farmers in the country and finally meet them face-to-face. And meanwhile, we're going to search for clues as far as what happened to 300 missing tigers that vanished from one of these farms in 2017.
3: I made a contact with a a guy in co uh, on the the other side of Vietnam. Carl, what did you just tell him about the 300 tigers? I said to just check once more about... uh... You know, if there's any indication that sometimes early
1: this year, probably four or five containers came across the border with tigers in it, if
0: anybody has heard about it. So what happened?
2: So these 300 tigers vanished at one of these farms. And the people who would know the most about what had occurred there was one of the co-owners named Sikon Gausavon. Sikon Gausavon is considered to be one of the most prolific tiger farmers in Laos. He was the co-owner to one of the largest tiger farms in Southeast Asia, if not the largest. And he'd also kind of play both sides. He had established government connections. He had helped craft Laos's plan to save tigers, while at the same time, you know, commanding one of these large tiger farms. So one of his top lieutenants was this man named Nakom Galviset. And Nicom Galpha said was believed by Karl Mann to have killed more tigers than anyone else in Laos. He was the person who was really the tiger farm manager. He was a person who cared for the tigers, raised the tigers, tended to them, and ultimately killed them. And they both worked at this place called Venus Acone. Venus Acone was the largest tiger farm at one point in Southeast Asia, and they had four hundred tigers. When you think about that there's only fifteen thousand tigers in the entire world, Four hundred tigers is a lot of tigers, and three hundred tigers had disappeared when the Lao government said we got to close these places. And so Carl had been researching this, trying to investigate this. And one of Carl's investigators had spent years cultivating Nakom, this farm manager, as a confidential source.
0: Did you find these notorious farmers?
2: We did. We ultimately went to this new resort. And he found both of them. They just started a new venture on the other side of the country that they were calling a zoo, but which Carl suspected was really a front for smuggling tigers. And we ultimately go out there, and I just remember we arrived at this resort, and nightfall was coming, and uh, we were in the middle of nowhere, Laos, and there was this hill, and at the top of the hill was where the tigers were. And that's also where their warden, Nicom, who'd make who'd made a career out of butchering and killing tigers, that's where he was. Uh, he was as well. And we could hear the tigers roaring, dozens of them, and it just reverberated. It, it triggers in you this primal instinct to run and hide. And then Carl was slinging, of course, his camera over his shoulder and heading up the hill to find that man and those tigers.
0: To confront these notorious tiger farmers and point out that what they're doing is illegal, and you're doing this in the middle of the night without any—I mean, that was that was, really. that was
2: that was the risk. So we go up there and we see this ramshackle structure. I don't know what to call it. That's all mesh fencing, and there's blue tarp and uh, corrugated iron roof, and all around us are these—the sound of this roaring tiger. And we go closer and closer and closer, and you just can immediately smell it. Just this acidic, sharp smell that burns your nostrils. It's so strong when you have 35 dozens of tigers just crushed into this one small space. And inside, there was a narrow hallway going through. On either side of this hallway, you just see these crawling tigers going back and forth.
3: Yes, yes. You would kill me, I know.
2: You would and the size of them is something you really don't understand until you see them that close. Right now I'm standing inside of one of these farms slash zoos and you can hear dozens of tigers howling. Uh, They're supposed to be fed in about a half hour right now. They're clearly hungry. There's a lot of pacing back and forth in these extraordinarily small cages for these very big animals. I mean, you just look at these animals and you just can't believe how big they are. And then we go outside and, and then there, is where Carl saw him. Nakom Nakom Gauw
0: This
2: man he'd been tracking for five years. This man who he'd heard describe how he kills tigers in the most macabre of details, right there sitting at a table, doing nothing more than drinking beer and smoking a cigarette, wearing dirty black pants and flip-flops. And Carl goes to him and he sits down he, and even though he knew that it would be dangerous and that he knew that he didn't want to be found out as more than tourists, he brings out his camera and he starts asking him these questions about, like, what are you doing here? What are going ha- what's going to happen to these tigers? Why are you breeding these tigers? What is this place? And the man, you know, did nothing more than really just kind of laugh at the questions and didn't really answer them. And the next day, I asked Carl about that. And I said, Carl, you've been tracking this guy for five years and you finally meet him what was that like and his answer was really interesting he said you know i feel less strongly about this guy being a miserable human than some of the other conservationists is what he said and what he meant by that was the fact that at least this Nicole man was who he was and that seeing him and meeting with him he wasn't didn't strike carl as this taciturn menacing gangster that he might have expected he struck him as impoverished and this is a truth of a lot of wildlife destruction in this world, is a lot of these people who initiate this are doing what they can to survive. Did you find these tigers? Ultimately, Nakom said, you know, more or less, that those tigers were, were killed and trafficked. And those tigers are gone now. At least that's what Carl
0: believes. So coming out of this trip, he was able to collect this enormous amount of, of photographic and video evidence that the illegal tiger trade continues to happen in Laos, right? He had drone shots and photos and hidden camera footage. What did he do with that?
2: So he ultimately took all of this evidence to the local officials, this local official of, of this international organization called CITES.
3: So, here
1: to...
2: He goes in there, he charges in there, and he says, I have all of this proof.
3: You know there's two more tiger bombs since Johannesburg, two new tiger bombs. You said you're closing down. Now we have two more tiger bombs, one in Tabak.
2: And ultimately...
3: So, I need you to, to prepare the official...
2: The answer was more or less like, we can't do anything with this information. You have to send it to the people in Geneva, the top bosses back there. And Carl's like, but I'm here.
3: But you decide the Psychies management authority, doesn't
2: it? I have all this stuff. And so ultimately, he does take all this information and he does put it in an email and he does send it off to the people in in Geneva, which he's done many times before. And the answer was nothing. They didn't respond to his email.
0: So after this whole trip and all the expense that he paid to gather all this evidence and all the risks that he took, it didn't actually change anything.
2: No. But isn't that the truth of it? I'm 33 years old. In my lifetime, this world has undergone an incredible transformation. When you think of the fact that in the last 30 years, in Germany, 75% of the insects in their nature preserves have vanished. 60% of wildlife populations over the last 40 years or so have dropped. This is a world confronting an end of wildness. And the reasons that we're confronting this is it's so hard to change it you are confronting these issues in countries that are deeply impoverished a lot of times, and their governments don't have the logistical or the expertise to tackle these issues a lot of times. And we're in a world that's more consumed and more worried about drug trafficking and stopping terrorists and stopping human trafficking. All of these issues are so much more important than ultimately the ecological destruction that's ongoing. And isn't that the truth of it, that this man it's something of a Don Quixote figure shouting into the wind. And is anyone going to listen to him?
0: Terry McCoy is a reporter for The Post. You can find photos and videos from his investigation in Laos at postreports.com.
3: There has been a lot of conversation by pundits about the electability and who can speak to the Midwest. But when they say that, they usually put the Midwest in a simplistic box and a narrow narrative. And too often, their definition of the Midwest leaves people out.
1: You know, I think it's been in all of our minds, sort of as this field has expanded and Senator Harris brought it up and said, I don't agree with what everyone says is electability. And I have this different idea of what that looks like. Chelsea
0: Janes is covering the 2020 election for The Post. And lately, she's been hearing a lot about this idea of electability, how electable certain candidates are. It's something that she hears from Democratic voters and from Democratic candidates, This week, Kamala Harris gave a speech at a dinner for the NAACP,
1: and she talked about what it means to be electable. She made the speech in Detroit, and Michigan was obviously one of those states that went to Donald Trump in 2016, in large part by dint of white blue-collar voters who had voted for Obama in 08 and then flipped to Trump in 16. And so I think that the notion that she's kind of combating is this widespread thought that there is this Midwestern voter who is white, a blue-collar worker, and can kind of go either way, Democrat or Republican. And that they're the
0: key for a Democrat to win the
1: 2020 election, you have to be—
0: The person who appeals to them to be able to potentially take down President Trump.
1: Right. And that that's the way the Democrats are going to win those battleground states that handed Trump the election last time. And she's saying, I think we're looking at this wrong. I don't think that's the only voter that matters in those areas that can deliver a win. And she's saying we're boxing ourselves into this one person who isn't necessarily representative of that area of the country. What have other candidates said about this? It's funny. It seems like everyone's sort of trying to define electability for their purposes. I think, you know, Harris put it in terms of race. She says that it's not the white, blue collar voter, but there are minority voters that get left behind in this conversation.
3: It leaves out people in this room who helped build cities like Detroit.
1: Meanwhile, you have people like Pete Buttigieg kind of redefining electability in terms of qualifications. You know, he says, why would we have people from Congress be most electable when Congress isn't really functioning? Why not have somebody who's run a functional city and balanced a budget?
3: And I would argue that that kind of preparation is no less of a preparation
2: than uh, spending years soaking in the ways of Washington. I know it's more traditional to come out of the yeah. Congress or the Senate, but you could also be a very senior member of the Congress or the Senate. And have never in your life managed more than a few dozen people. It's different when you've been leading a city. And I think that's the kind of experience
3: that's most relevant to the job today.
1: I mean, at the end of the day, they're all trying to define electable as themselves. But I think it's a conversation that everyone's sort of grappling with. And it
0: does feel like this is a conversation that's very much rooted in gender as well, right? That, like, Hillary Clinton lost... You know, she lost because she didn't have that electability to her. But what does that mean other than the fact that she was a woman? And I think you can make many criticisms of Hillary Clinton that have nothing to do with the fact that she was a woman. But it it still does feel like there's some skittishness about right now going up against Donald Trump is a
1: woman electable definitely and you know i think part of what defines electability for people ironically given that it's may of 2019 and we're talking about this is what has happened before you know so it's funny to see people trying to project as they are because what ultimately defines electability usually is hindsight like all of a sudden donald trump is the electable guy because he's got a message and he can appeal to these different groups well would you have said that in may of 2015. You know, maybe not. And I think the other part of that is because it's so rooted in what's happened before and you haven't seen a woman win, there's no electable woman profile. There's no one to look at and say, does she fit the template? So all of these women, whether it's Warren, Harris, Klobuchar, you know, Gillibrand, are all sort of having to create their own template and combat all these things that have come up with Clinton in the past and all these arguments against a woman president, you know, that really have nothing to do with them.
0: It's funny because It feels like this is a debate that happens every presidential election about who is the most electable and and who would be the most appealing. But I actually don't think that's the case, that it used to be you just thought about I want to vote for the person who I like the most, who seems to, to benefit me the most. But now there's like this calculus of I want to vote for the person who I think would appeal to the most other people where did that come from?
1: You know, like many things, I, I think Donald Trump sort of changed the way people think about things. Because if you had outlined electable, it wasn't Donald Trump before 2016, and suddenly here he is. So I think now, partially, I think on the Democratic side, there's this desperation to beat him that has everyone playing amateur psychologists saying, What are the most people gonna like? Is it Joe Biden? But wait, what if it's not Joe Biden? Everyone's trying to figure out what the mainstream candidate looks like because they want to find the one that's going to appeal to the most people and beat Donald Trump. And I feel like this is what I hear a lot from Democratic
0: voters, right? That, like, it doesn't matter who I want to be president. It's like I just need to game out who is the most likely for other people to want to be president. And then I need to vote for that person. And – but – in a perfect world, like, isn't that what the primary process is for? Like, everyone just votes for who they like, and then the person who comes out with the most votes at the end of that process ends up as the as a nominee rather than everyone trying to, like, game out who will other people vote for, and then I should vote for that person, and then what if other people don't vote for my person, and...
1: Right, and it's so interesting because the early polling, whatever, you know, stock you put in that among Democratic voters who were asked, do you want a nominee who aligns, you know, with liberal values and and pulls the party left? Or do you want someone who can beat Donald Trump? It's really split. You hear from a lot of people that they they want the person that can beat him. And what's interesting about that is that I, I cover Senator Harris' events more often than anyone else. And a lot of people I talk to at those events say, you know, my first choice would be Elizabeth Warren, but I don't think she can win. Like, if your first choice is Elizabeth Warren in a perfect primary in a vacuum, you're voting for Elizabeth Warren. And it's so interesting because I think that that has sort of borne out lately for her in the polls where she's seen a little bit of a jump where, you know, all of a sudden she gets a little momentum and then everyone starts to say, oh, maybe she can win. And then all those voters come back. But it's so interesting to watch the psychology play out. This primary is, is very much about who everyone else is voting for. It's, it's very middle schooly, I think, in that way. Chelsea
0: Janes covers politics for The Post. And now, one more thing about a different kind of florist in Richmond, Virginia.
3: If you sit there and look, people actually come in with orchids, and they leave with orchids. The difference is the orchids they arrive with are all sort of spent and flowered out and maybe a bit flaccid, and the ones they leave with are all perky and blooming. My name is Adrian Higgins. And I've been writing about horticultural matters for about 30 years. And I'd never, ever heard of this. And this immediately put up my journalistic antennae. So I found this guy called Art Chadwick, who had created this orchid florist in the heart of Richmond's historic district. So we started out selling orchids, and no sooner had we sold them... Then the recipients would come back and say, "Uh, Mr. you could you care for this orchid and bring it back into bloom for me? And I thought, well, I guess I could. He will take in your orchid between blooming cycles. And what that does is it relieves you of all the, not just the sort of the practical matters of how to keep your orchid going, but also the sort of emotional ones. Many people are attached to their plants or they just don't wanna throw away a living thing. And for $2 a month, sure, I'll keep this plant going. So the orchid would stay in their house during its blooming time, which would be anywhere from one to three months, depending on its duration. And then they send it back to camp, and we would grow it for another year until it blooms again. So it's usually on three months, off nine months, on three months, off nine months, and that schedule continues indefinitely. There's something about this plant that people don't want to let go of. They think they're very guilty about watching it decline and die. It's more than just how to grow an orchid. You know, the garden is where we, as human beings, touch nature. And we live in a world where it's more important than ever to be connected to the biology of our planet. And gardening is the way in.
0: Adrian Higgins is the gardening columnist for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Check out our website at postreports.com to find links to the stories featured in today's episode and to sign up for our daily newsletter, which goes out every afternoon with a heads up on the latest show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.